Welcome to Soundstage Insider, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the film and television industry. We're bringing you the visionary directors and producers, the talented cinematographers, editors, sound designers, and more who really make the magic happen. We delve deep into their stories, their struggles, and their triumphs. So let's go beyond the red carpet and discover a fascinating world of behind-the-scenes talent. So we all know what a director is, right? They're the ones sat on the chair with the megaphone, yelling instructions at the actors. (laughs) At least, that's what popular culture would have us believe. But what's the truth? Today, I attempt to get to the bottom of what a director is, what they do, how they work with other members of the production chain, and all of the other responsibilities handled by the director. So, if, like me, you're just intrigued to learn about this creative, complicated job, or you want to pursue being a director yourself, this episode is for you. Today I'm joined by two extraordinarily talented directors who answer these questions and more. We have two full-length interviews coming up on this episode, so let's not waste any more time and dive into the first one. Rachel Morrison is an American cinematographer and director. She's best known for the films Fruitville Station, Cake, Dope, Mudbound, and 2018's award-winning Marvel Cinematic Universe epic Black Panther. Most recently, Rachel directed the episode The Minds of Mandalore from the Star Wars television series The Mandalorian. For her work on Mudbound, she earned a nomination for an Academy Award for Best Cinematography, making her the first woman ever recognized in the category. I started the interview by asking her if her work as a cinematographer led her into directing, or if cinematography and directing were parallel but otherwise unconnected paths. I think it led to directing in that as a cinematographer, I was constantly absorbing and and learning on the job um and and i think it was enough directors that i'd worked for as a cinematographer telling me that i would make a good director that it started to percolate a little bit and i started to you know think about what that would would feel like and look like for me um but it wasn't something i set out to do initially that said it's all super interconnected in that it's storytelling right like whether you're telling a story purely through imagery or through imagery and performance and sound and all these other things, it's still ultimately storytelling. Right. Yeah, absolutely. The more of these interviews that I do, the more that I realize, and it's obvious, I guess, but film and television production is obviously a team effort. (laughs) So can you talk a little on the importance of people skills as a director, and I guess as a cinematographer, but primarily as a director, how much that plays a part in your, your directing work? Oh, I mean, I think filmmaking is such a team sport. It's nothing if not a team sport. Um, And directing is this overwhelming task of running a massive team and hopefully having a a fairly singular vision to carry everybody through. But really, I think it's hiring people whose work you respect and then giving them as long a leash as possible to to let them do good work. You know, obviously honing in on the thing that you're after in the singular vision, but yeah, I, I would be nothing without my team. From my cinematographer when I'm directing to my editor to my, I mean, music composition is everything too. It's like, it's all of it, right? 
And are you gathering these sort of team members throughout your career? You're kind of keeping an eye out for people that you'd love to work with and collaborators? Yeah, I think as a DP, I, I certainly had, I mean, I, I spent so many days on set, probably by comparison to most directors, right? Like my, my whole career has been on set. So yeah. I know a lot of people in the trenches. I know a lot of, of other department heads, like obviously gaffers, key grips, camera crew, but then also, you know, anybody else you'd find on set, sound mixers, production designers, art directors, set dressers. What I didn't have in my array as a cinematographer is all the people in post. So right. that's been new for me is kind of finding editors and music composers and post producers and and the, the post side of things. And even working with a producer in the capacity of having them be your right hand. Like as a, as a DP, the line producer is the person I'm usually dealing with, and it's usually us negotiating about money and equipment. Right. And as a and as a director, it's the person in the trenches with me, you know, and it's the person whose opinion I need to trust and things like that. So, I mean, if you could break it down, you know, as if I was a child, <laughs> sure. what that what that relationship with a producer is between a director and a producer, because I I don't think it's it's clear to a layperson what those how those roles intersect. Yeah. Well, and also I think a layperson, when you watch the credits roll, you see 500 producers and, and, right. and even, and even a non-layperson half the time, I'm like, what did, you know, what did this, who was the person in the trenches versus the person who got the money versus the, but the, the producer who's a real producing partner is like, let's say, I mean, right now I'm looking at a book to adapt or looking at a, a an article or a script, like producer might be somebody as early as that, who's helping you take this thing that is a thousand page book and pare it down to a two hour movie or take an article and expand it out and find a writer. I mean, it starts as early as that, but then, you know, really when you get to production, it's the person who's next to you at the monitor. If you're at the monitor, I tend to like to be right beside the camera. So oftentimes I'll be with a, a clamshell next to the camera. My producer yeah. will be at the monitor and then we'll have a conversation. Be like, did we get it? Uh, it you, I mean, I like having, I like having a couple other opinions in the room because it's like there's something, I mean, art is subjective, right? There's no right or wrong. It's not like a math problem where you four plus four equals eight and you know you got it right. So sometimes just having that person that you trust to be like, I think I think we're good. Like, let's move on. And you look at that person and they're either like, yeah, we got it. And you feel like, okay, we got it. Or they're like, I feel like we could get one more like this. And and sometimes I'm like, that's a great idea. Let's try it like that, you know? Um so that that's it's almost like um a creative it's a creative like left brain right I mean maybe you find somebody who compliments your instincts right or left brain right brain, or somebody's completely in sync with you but just to have another opinion in the room and then also the producer is the person dealing with the finances yeah um so helping to to whether it's hiring the line producer who's really the person dealing with the finances or finding the financiers to finance your idea but it's like they're the money conduit you know, I like to stay as far away from that as I can. Um, sure. <laughs> other than, you know, I'm definitely very good at the what's the meat, what's the potatoes. I'm going to spend this much on the meat, I'm gonna, you know, make the potatoes work for this much. I want, you know, to spend this many days on the stage, this many days. Like that's, that's hopefully you're doing that together. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. I, I always just assumed it was a financial thing. And, but the fact that you're so creatively connected as well is really interesting. That's with the creative producer. I mean, of the, yeah. of the 500 people whose names get producer credits, one or two are the people who are actually behind the monitors weighing in creatively. But, but yes, gotcha. that's the person who I'm referencing. So I'm really interested in the role of a director in a 
television series with you know multiple episodes and you're coming in for one or two episodes firstly do you choose which episode you want to be involved with or or how do, how did that process begin so sometimes yes sometimes no in in the case of mandalorian i was i always knew i was doing episode two and i think it had to do with schedule first was like when i because i was leaving to go to a movie and it sort of timed out with you know when i could shoot i don't think i it wasn't like i um read five scripts and chose to but i think somebody was thinking this would be a good episode for rachel morrison that was whether that was rick rick or john or john dave and rick but I, I do think it was intentional that I ended up with episode two. Yeah. But it wasn't my call to make. There are other shows where I'll only do it if it's the pilot. There are other shows where I'm more interested if it's the finale block. If, if it's not going to be the pilot and it's somebody else's show and I'm coming in as a, as a guest, then I want something exciting like a finale episode or, or something like that. But um, And usually in episodic, unlike, not this wasn't the case. I don't think this was the case with Mandalorian. I think I had to, to decide to take the job before I read the script, but most episodic shows I'll, I'll get to read hopefully my script, but at least the first chunk of them before right. signing on. Yeah. Yeah. So for a show, oh, well, for a television show, just in general, how do you maintain a sort of consistency of vision with yeah. a whole slew of other directors in the season? I mean, it's a, it's a good question and a valid question. And it's, it's certainly why I gravitate towards pilots and things where I get to really invent the look. But I think usually it's striking a balance. Like when I came on to the morning show, I watched all the morning shows. I knew, I knew the style of the show, the tone of the show. I had many of the crew members who had been on, you know, the rest of the show, but my episode, I really wanted to do more handheld. And so that was, you know, instinctually it felt right. It was a particularly emotional episode for Reese Witherspoon's character. And it's also something that I, I really, I love, I love handheld because you can attenuate, like when you're on a, a dolly or you're on a crane, it's like, it's fluid or it, it's moving or it's not right. And it's, it's moving fast or it's not, but handheld, there's like levels from one to 10, you know, if I'm, if I'm trying to match like how handheld it is with how emotionally fraud or what the stakes are, or if somebody's going through something, I can kind of, you know, I can, I can raise it up. I can go to a five. I can take it down to a three. I can do it in the moment in response to exactly what the actor is giving me. And there's something that I really love about intuiting in response to performance. You know, it's very present feeling that you get from a handheld. So I brought a lot more handheld to my episode. And I, I think if anything, somebody did run it up the flag and was like, hey, by the way, they're doing like, there's a little more camera movement than we're used to. And I think everybody up there at sort of the top watched it and they're like, it's working really well. Keep up, keep up the good work. So it was like, yeah. I had just enough freedom to make it my own while still, I wasn't completely reinventing the color palette of the show or the lighting of the show or, you know, but it was maybe the way that I would operate or I would tell the, the particular story that I had for my episode, which was a, a fairly singular re-story, re you know? I guess I I sort of imagined that all the directors from the show would go to like a classroom and like for Mandalorian and John Favreau would like get a big blackboard and start, you know, pointing but, I mean, at the things. The nice thing about Mandalorian is it, it's almost like an anthology. Like the, yeah. even though the overall show has to some extent an overall look, it really, I think with Mandalorian, much more so than like a morning show or something like that, each episode has freedom to make it their own. And, and I think that John really encourages that. Um, yeah. 
And so I, I never felt constrained with the camera language, for instance, for my episode. It was always it was always whatever felt right to me for Minds of Mandalore. Well, actually, speaking about that, and you you were conjecturing as to why you were you were chosen for episode two, this specific episode. Do you think your cinematography experience really was a key to that? Because without giving too much away, a large proportion of this episode is set in a mine where, you know, lighting and camera is going to be so crucial for getting that across. Yeah, think key? I think it was. I mean, I, I definitely think it was by design that they chose me for that episode. There aren't a ton of characters and it's, there isn't a ton of dialogue. I mean, there there, there is obviously some, but it, it it is a it's very much storytelling through visuals um, and yeah. introducing this planet and the underworld of this planet that hasn't been explored like this. And we were playing with some new technology too, with the interactive lighting from the from the flashlight and how that affected the set and and the volume. So it was a, a fairly technical episode, mm. and even just like moving baby specifically the carriage in space is quite challenging so i think it was not a coincidence that that i came into to that episode in particular So what was your relationship like with your DP on that show <laughs> or any really when when you're the director and you're working with the DP? Well, for me, coming into a show that isn't my show, that I'm not setting the look for, I always want to really respect. First of all, it's a beautiful show and they've been doing a phenomenal job. But just by nature, I think it, I I want to respect the people who have designed the the initial look. And so Dave, so Dave Klein was my DP. He's amazing. Yeah. And he did a lot of, of the other seasons. And so it was kind of, um, he brought some new lenses for the season. He was all excited to geek out with me on the, the new lenses and also exploring this new technology and sort of walking me through the, the different, you know, we, we were on the volume for a lot of it and a couple of sets. And, and, but even within the volume, there are different gaming engines for, for a couple of different of our, of our volume sets and kind of what the strengths and weaknesses are of those and sort of getting me up to speed with all of the technical both constraints and look at this magical world that we can create. And then within that, I was like, I'm thinking of this idea for this. And what do you think of that? I mean, then it just starts to flow in this like very natural collaborative way where I understand the overarching rules of the land, kind of to your point, like the, the bigger construct of how the soup is made or like, what else? here's my big pile of ingredients. But then within that, I can take these three ingredients or I can do this thing or I can try. I mean, I think everybody's always, interestingly, I think with episodic, especially people are excited to try new things. It's like, if you can yeah. come up with a shot they haven't done before, especially for a crew that's been on a show for a while, like everybody's excited to try that that shot because it's it doesn't feel like they're rehashing anything. And I think, I mean, people always ask if it's hard for DPs to shoot for me, but I think if you ask the DP it's actually kind of easy because I understand their world. And yeah. and like if, if a lighting setup takes a long time, I know why, you know, or, mm. or if they hit a particular hiccup, I can pivot with them really easily because I, I understand it, you know. I presume the communication is a bit more on a level. There's a shorthand yeah. between the two. And also yeah. I just respect it so much that mm. like I will I will help them to help and encourage them to do their best work too, you know. Well, speaking about the rest of the crew as a director, aside from technical ability, the presumption is that everyone's good at their job, but are there any 
personal qualities in actors or crew members that you particularly value when on set? Oh, I mean, so many. I, I think, I mean, we give up so much to make movies and television. Our, our days are long um, and our hours are strange. And it's like you really build a community and a family. And so you have to like each other. Like it is not a job where it's enough to just be good at your job. Like you also, at least for me, I want to surround myself with good people, kind people, generous people, positive people. I want to make, you know, when I get to lead the charge, like with my movie, it's really important to me that we all have a good time, you know, and and that we treat each other with respect, but also um, we understand that hopefully we're making great art, but we are not saving lives and there is a difference. And so whether it's, you know, safety coming first or just let's enjoy every moment together because, you know, we're not with our kids. We're not with our wives. Like, let's let's make the best of this time that we have. And also, I, I try to create an environment where people recognize that, like, if, and this actually comes a little bit from some of my experience with Ryan Coogler, but, like, the best idea on set could come from, you know, the third electric. Like, I want people to feel like they can always, if they see something magical, like, if you're shooting in, in a real environment and we're pointing the camera this way, but, like, it just so happens that the sun is, you know, kicking off of a piece of glass back here and it's doing something wonderful. Like I want everybody to feel like they can be like, Hey, just check it out. Like maybe it's worth grabbing, you know, like, cause I do think, I just think it's such a, it's such a collaborative medium and I want to empower everyone to feel like they're part of that collaboration. Well, that really strikes me as part of the people skills thing that I talked about earlier, where you're not this sort of autocratic leader that barks orders around. You know, everyone's kind of pitching in together because I guess on a film set, when when shooting in strange places and what have you, things, things can go wrong. Maybe a scene's not working. Do you have a, a go-to process for when things aren't working right? Or Yeah, I mean, I think... I think either, depending on how not working right they are, like either we stop down and kind of assess, you know, get a core group of people to assess like what's not working and see what, what we feel like we need to change. Or, you know, oftentimes with with actors, I've found that it's as soon as you let the air, like eh, even if you don't feel like you have it, sometimes it's it's the play like, I'm, I'm good, I've got it. Like, let's, let's play now. Like yeah. you take the pressure off a little bit. And like that suddenly allows them to do something new or to try something different. So it depends on what's not working, like where, where one needs to pivot, but it's usually, um, it's not just beating the same thing over and over again. It's always like trying something different, throwing some curveball at it to, to see what it, what shakes up. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. I'd love to really quickly talk about the specifics of Mandalorian shooting because Mm -hmm. you mentioned it earlier, the volume that was a show that pioneered this technology. So yeah. if you could <laughs> explain it in a relatively simple way <laughs> for our audience, what that is and what that was like stepping into. Yeah, it was awesome to step into because as a... So if I were to contrast it with something like Black Panther, which was the older sort of blue screen technology for you know for a very basic explanation, it used to be, or in the in the blue screen version of things, you'd have a set and behind every window, every set with extension, like above eight feet or whatever would be blue screen. And we might have some sense of what that was going to turn into. There'd be maybe a, a mock-up or a previs, this imagined world, but you're really left to your imagination for what's going to go in there. It gives post a little bit more freedom if they want to change their minds. But at the same time, that's kind of terrifying. Like, 
if I light something thinking it's going to be firelight and then they decide mm, we're going to make it, you know, whatever, something else, a uh, car headlight, and suddenly my lighting doesn't match up with what they put in post and then everything feels a little out of sync. The, the concept behind the volume is you do all of that post work first. You build the worlds first. And so then you basically project the worlds on these LED screens, which constitutes the volume. And so you get to then inhabit the world in camera. The goal is to really capture everything in camera. So instead of being a set with blue screen behind it, now the set exists in this massive landscape and in, in, you know, on the planet Mandalore. And what that does on a show like Mandalorian, which, you know, was very smart of them is like, you have this metal reflective suit, you have these metal and glass, you know, spaceships, like all of those worlds, the planets are reflecting in the metal in real time. And so you really yeah. can frame for, I mean, for me, it was very fulfilling to be able to shoot and frame for exactly you know, at least the intention of what was going to be in camera, as opposed to, like, I just remember on Panther at Warrior Falls, the costumes, the, the extra, everything looked beautiful. And so there's this tendency to point at all the people in the stands. And I had to keep reminding my operators, like, guys, I know that just looks like blue screen, but it's going to be waterfalls and it's going to be backlit and it's going to be amazing. So don't forget to point at the blue screen. Yeah. But it's like, you can't, it just doesn't, you're not seeing exactly what you're going to get. And there's something really fulfilling, I think, about even like back to the third electric or the, or the you know, the grips or like on a set like Mandalorian, everybody can see what we're making. Like you walk by a monitor and it, it looks very much like it's going to look in the, in the end result. Whereas when, you know, when you have a set that's very much green or blue screen, you know, most people don't even know if it's day or night. Like it's a little disorienting, I think, not just for the actors, but also for the people who are making the thing, you know, they don't, they're like, what scene is this again? Like, you can't always tell, right? Because it's like yeah. one scene's going to get mountains behind it, another scene's going to get water behind it. Um, but so I, the volume is just a chance to take all of that post work, do it ahead of time, and then exist in the spaces that you're, you know, that you're shooting. And I can imagine that the actors appreciate that too. I mean, yeah. I'm sure there's much, you know, if you're just eliciting maybe two or three percent more of an authentic performance, it's worthwhile, right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, every, everybody feels like they're telling the same story again. Yeah. I love that. Well, as a final question, I'd love to hear your advice for up and coming directors. Do you have a suggestion for how people in 2023 and beyond would potentially get into this world? I mean, I think the pros and cons of the modern reality are, unlike when I came out of film school or whatever, like you have the technology very affordably to make anything. Tangerine was a film that was made on an iPhone. It's beautiful. But also for a five with a five thousand dollar camera, you get a full sensor and a full you know raw like you can make imagery that could compete with the best in the world. So what that does is it levels the playing field on one on the one hand, and really means there's no reason why you shouldn't be making your short films on weekends because you can afford to do that. You don't need a fifty person crew and a two hundred thousand dollar budget to do that. But it also means there's a huge oversaturation of content, and whether that's what we're all experiencing in the streaming reality where it's like, shit, I don't know what to watch. Mm. And you have good things falling through the crack because there's just so much good content out there. Or, you know, I mean, even on the film festival, like it's just, there's so much, so much now. So I think the best advice I have is like, make the thing that you feel like you can be proud of and stand behind. Obviously hope like hell that it will rise to the top. And I think it helps to 
ask yourself like, is there something, something original about this or something that's going to make it doesn't, or if it's not original, is it the best version of this thing? Because I don't know if you, if you're making the, if you're making the thing you've seen 10 times, like how is that ever going to get seen? But really just make the thing that you, like if you're going to get pigeonholed because of this short film that you made, make sure it's in the right genre, right? Don't make the horror short if you really want to be a drama director. Don't make the comedy short if you want to be a horror director. Because like people really do love to be like, oh, you can do this one thing. I'm going to give you that exact thing for your next project. So that would be the other, I guess, piece of advice is like make make the thing that you believe in and tell the story you want to tell. And then at the very least, you can stand by that, you know, that you've made this thing that you're proud of, even if nobody sees it because it's oversaturated. Well, that's that's fantastic advice. Um, I know people are going to get a lot out of this. So, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Dan Trachtenberg is an American filmmaker and podcast host. He directed the 2016 horror thriller film 10 Cloverfield Lane, which earned him a Directors Guild of America Award nomination for Outstanding Directing. Dan is also the director of the 2011 short film Portal No Escape and playtest from season three of the Netflix series Black Mirror. Other directing credits include Amazon Prime's The Boys and the Peacock series The Lost Symbol. His latest project is the fifth Predator film, Prey, an absorbing and visually captivating story that follows Naru, a skilled warrior of the Comanche Nation who fights to protect her tribe against one of the first highly evolved predators to land on Earth. Here's our interview with Dan Trachtenberg. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk about directing and particularly about Prey, which I saw recently and absolutely loved. So thank you so much for joining me. Awesome. Thank you for having me. So before we get to Prey, I'd like to hear a bit about how you first got into this wonderful industry, (laughs) what your first forays were and what your intention was when you came in. Yeah, I mean, I grew up, making movies with my action figures and best friends. This was something that I always wanted to do. If it wasn't making movies, it would have been drawing comics or making video games uh, in some capacity. And I went to to a, a film school in Philadelphia and my brother, who is quite a years older than me, um, quite a few years older than me, was was out in LA editing commercials. So at an early stage, I saw commercials as a more unique path in to directing um, because, you know, of all the fields in the industry, directing is one that has really no ladder to climb and which is very overwhelming and daunting. And you're always looking for, well, what, what could be my way in? And I read every book about how Sam Raimi and the Coens and all those guys, you know, raised money from dentists and lawyers to make their friend. I just felt like that's not me. That's not going to be my, that's not, that's not what I'm good at. Um, And I really fell in love with commercial filmmakers like Jonathan Glazer and um, Ridley and Tony Scott, obviously, but also their son, Jake Scott, um, and Ridley's son, not their son, um, <laughs> and Michael Bay. And I just, my, my, my favorite movies of the summer were these commercials that I was seeing that were, that were director's cuts or European ads. And so instead of making thesis films at film school, I started making spec commercials. And from that, linked up with with a production company 
um, in Philadelphia and then moved out to LA um, and was making commercials that were very slice of life, emotional, documentary style, things I enjoyed, but ultimately not, did not represent the kind of movie that I'd want to make. And of course, at this point, the commercial filmmaker becoming a movie director was a very well-traveled path. Like I was very right. behind the eight ball on that. Um, similarly, just as a tangential comment in high school, I really, and middle school is when I fell in love with Hong Kong action movies. And I thought my way in would have been to go to Hong Kong, make movies there, and then bring, go back to the States. Um, and so I started learning Chinese, unfortunately Mandarin, which is not what was spoken in Hong Kong, um, yeah. but and learning the written language because that is what did work for both. Um, and uh, and unfortunately, behind eight ball again, the Matrix comes out before that. Desperado had come out. John Wu was making Hard Target. Like like it was coming to America without me, um, right. without my help. So uh, I was always sort of just behind the the, the trend. But anyway, jumping forward again, I was making commercials that did not represent what I wanted to do movie-wise. And so eventually, uh, I decided to sort of go all in on my savings and put together a short film um, that would represent more what I wanted to do um, in, in, a, in a bigger format. So I made a short film based on a video game called Portal. Um, hmm. it, the, the main interest being, at the time, there were a lot of vfx heavy shorts that were getting a lot of attention and, and and starting careers off in hollywood and i was trying to find a way i'm not an effects guy like i'm not the person that can do a thing and then and then work all night on my laptop and pull, like some of those filmmakers were even going back to cameron and fincher who are guys who are were, were very capable tradesmen that could yeah. that um aid in everything they're doing as directorially that that is not me um but thankfully, in putting this short together, I also was doing a podcast called The Totally Rad Show at the very beginning of podcasts where I reviewed movies and video games and comics and had a little bit of a following on a very new social media, uh, uh, what do you call it, system platform? called Twitter. Platform, platform, thank you. I was like, <laughs> what is the word? Uh, called Twitter. Uh, and so I tweeted out all of my very specific effects needs. And from that assembled this like international a team of effects badasses all over Twitter. So I had like match movers in the Netherlands, um, <laughs> particle guy in New York, a CG modeler in the UK and compositors here in LA, um, all working together virtually at the very beginning stages of this being possible. Um, yeah. and we, we put together this short based on, based on, based on the game portal. And that's wow. really what, um, got me into the, the movie biz. Oh, I love that. Did I hear you say you went to school in Philly? Because that's where I am right now. I'm just, actually just north of Philly. I'm in Bucks County. I grew up nearby. My dad worked in Bucks County. Yeah, no, I I, I went, I grew up around Willow Grove. Um, went to Cheltenham High School. And, uh, but I have friends that went to CB West, which is in Bucks County. Um, yeah, I would take the train downtown yeah. from Willow Grove. I would go to Chinatown. I was learning Kung Fu at the time too uh, in, in, in high school. And there was a store that sold pornography and and dubs of hong kong action movies where like they were dubs of dubs of dubs oh and right yeah the, the 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 quality was so poor and eventually when i was started learning chinese i started learning mandarin uh, there was a pharmacy that i would go to and i could i could barely speak 
enough to tell them the movie I'd want to see. And they had better versions of the uh, VHS copies of the movies, um, but where the subtitles were like cut off halfway. So I could like <laughs> only read the tops of letters as I was watching. Um, uh, it was a good time. Good time. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's amazing. So, so where did you learn... You know, I've spoken to directors previously, and it it strikes me that there's a lot of people skills involved in directing, right? Mm. So where did you, where did you learn those skills? Did you learn them on the job? Is that something you're innately good at? Such an interesting question. Um, A, probably my parents um, Mm. and older brother, um, like all the positive influences in my life. And interestingly, a lot from doing the podcast that for me, was just an excuse to communicate about the things that I love, just to get out of my system. I want to talk about this stuff. I didn't think much about being a good presenter. And Mm. my co-hosts in the show were actors and presenters. And being near them for so many years doing that really positively influenced me on how best to communicate. And I I think also, I never forced anything. I, I tried my best to find my comfort zone and hone it and excel at it rather than attempt to do what I'm not, what I did not feel capable of in terms of like, I have friends that moved out to LA and did the classic thing where they would call up producers pretending to be their own agent and be like, hold, hold for Mike and then different voice and Mike and doing that thing. And that, that worked. And they were the kind of person that would excel at that. Yeah. I am not that person. I I'm, I'm not a person who I can go to a big party and network and find my way in and meet, you know, I'm more introverted, but I, but I am, I know that I am pretty good one-on-one. So I, any opportunity I had to go to a lunch or a dinner with this, a friend of this person or that person who works at this studio or whatever, I really push myself to do things that way. And that, that has worked out. I think I would have burned bridges if I was pretending to be the kind of person I wasn't. And to better answer your question, I think that's ended up functioning for me in specifically in product, you know, development and production movies mm. in being very comfortable saying, I don't know when there's a yeah. thing that I don't know. So that when I do know something, I know that I'm speaking about it with confidence and I never have that icky feeling of like, eh, I'm in waters that I don't know how to tread, you know? And, and when people speak to me, but they know when I am, Every time it is very clear that I'm being honest about what's happening and they can be emboldened by the confidence I have in whatever it is. And they can also be emboldened to help me better figure out what, it, what something is and be more participatory in getting there and collaborative and which are all things that make for happier cast and crew and, and a better end product because people have more skin in the game. And so that's how it shaped up for me, I would say. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. There's a there's a confidence in saying I don't know, right? There's, yes, you're not trying to bullshit your way through life. If we all don't know stuff, you know. Right. So yeah, there's right. a confidence in acknowledging that. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Also interesting. I spoke to um, Rachel Morrison. She's a cinematographer, and she uh, directed right. one of the Mandalorian episodes recently. Right. And she's really interesting, and she was talking about she had a similar sort of. She was very humble, you know, mm. and so on set, she would be like, you know, I'd be open to anyone making suggestions, anyone, you know, electrical guy making a suggestion for why don't we try this, you know, and it sounds like you foster that kind of environment too, right, on set. Without a doubt. And it yeah. sometimes has complications and you can be 
inundated with with suggestion and have to sift through that then because you've created that <laughs> atmosphere. But I much prefer that mm-hmm. um, because it, we're we're kind of like it's what, how I felt as a kid when we were trying roping my friends into making movies. And it's like we're all doing we're all trying to figure this out. This is a group problem. Yeah, and hopefully I have a good meter to to make good guesses at what it is that we have to do. Because uh, that's everything is a guess, you know. Um, a yeah. director is just hopefully a better guesser than than other folks. Um, yeah. But the screenplay is a guess. It's not the end product. It is a guess, and the director is making guesses, and the, every cast cinematographer is making get. We're all making guesses. But uh, it's just so fun when we're all like piloting in and like, oh, how do we do this thing? And oh, I know it. And we chase the good. We chase the cool constantly. You know, like yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's a team sport. Yeah, I love yeah, that. yeah. Um, so let's talk about Prey because I watched it recently. Absolutely loved it, and um, I'm really excited to be talking about it with you today. Awesome. Let's go right back to the beginning of the process. When mm. you're pitching a project, is it easier or harder if you're pitching like a franchise kind of a gig or something completely original? On the one hand, you've got a responsibility when it's a franchise. But then again, it's almost like a proven entity, right? There's there's some kind of proof of concept there. I mean, no matter what, original or franchise, the easiest thing to pitch is something that you that you know in those sentences are like in those first sentences that you're speaking are like this is all like that you believe in the awesome and the unprecedented nature of it. So if yeah. it's original thing, same deal. If there's something then what you're what you're about to unfurl on who is listening like this is okay won't it be amazing if we make this thing together that we can high five over how cool this is and this yeah. same thing um with ip it, it, you know it's not i've avoided experiences where i'm just pitching an iterative step you know like oh i think i could make this franchise material a little better than the previous one or yeah. what you know like but to me, what's exciting is figuring out the cool, the most unexpected, most interesting, coolest version of this thing that we all didn't even realize we were desperate to see, you know? Mm. And that certainly helped with Prey, which was an idea I had, and but th- there was a problem in that they were actually already either developing or prepping or in production on The Predator, yeah. Jim Black did. And I... My refs were like, oh, maybe don't, you know, and I was like, but this idea is too good. I cannot hold it in. Like, and so part of my angle in pitching it, which is really just an email to one of the execs that I knew was over there at Fox. And I said, I know you're doing this movie right now that I'm sure is sure to be beginning of a new trilogy or whatever it is. So maybe we function the way that Star Wars is functioning at the time. I don't even know if Solo had come out yet, but Solo and Rogue One are are offshoots while there's a main trilogy happening in episode seven, eight, nine. And so I said, why don't we just call this Prey? So that there's yeah. no confusion over the matter and blah, blah, blah. Then I didn't like the name and then then it but then it <laughs> stuck and then it came back. And yeah. um so uh, yeah, that was the the first thing, you know, was pitching the movie and its name, and the name came from avoiding some, you know, what they were already working on. And did the end result? match the pitch is it pretty much as you kind of dreamt it up very much so very very much so there there are some differences you know initially i think the first pitch was that nadu and the predator team up and then as soon as i linked up with the writer patrick i realized like no the fun there's two things that are fun about this movie 
One is seeing that that creature being ferocious and not not <laughs> being friendly. And the other is her against the impossible odds. Like, I don't want to make it any easier for the protagonist. You know, we want to make it as hard as possible. So if we're going to have a character that's trying to prove themselves, we don't want to say like, and then the thing that she was up against becomes her friend. You know, like, yeah. no, no, no. It's, it wants to be that we see the poster and you see tiny her at the time I was even thinking maybe it's a child or a younger, you know, and looking up at that thing and being like, how is she, you know? And, and then you watch me, you go, that's how, you know? Yeah. Um, so I really wanted that, that really David and Goliath mashup. And so we, the first pitch changed a little bit, but other than that, it was mostly there um, from the beginning. And, and a lot of this presumably hinged on you finding Naru the actor, right? To perfectly yeah. embody that character. What was that? Was it like a bolt out of the blue when you, you saw Amber for the first time? What was that moment like when you first saw her? Or did you picture it to her? Yeah, I, it kind of was. I mean, I, fairly quickly after our first Skype, because it was pre-pandemic, no one had heard of Zoom uh, before. <laughs> yeah, uh, We had a Skype, there's a Skype audition. She was in a hotel room and conversationally, I found her to be really interesting and engaging and down to earth and insightful about what we, what we were doing. And then her first very cold read was great. And I was like, it's probably her. <laughs> and then we did some chemistry tests and in person, and she did a the scene between her and her mother three ways. She did it once in English, once in Comanche, and then once without any words at all. A dialogue scene with all the beats, just but not speaking any words, and it was very moving and terrific. And and then we had a physical portion of the of the test, which had her jumping over objects and sliding under things and running around. And what I fell in love with was that she was she was always telling a story and finding character moments in a small way, but inside that, as opposed to just showing off her physical capabilities, you know. So yeah, it was quite clear. Uh, that she had to be not for sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, she was, she was incredible. So when this is your concept, you're directing the piece, is it tempting to be a kind of control freak with the whole thing? <laughs> like put your hand into all the different areas or are you able to relinquish control in the various departments and let people do their thing? I, I, I'd be curious if that question were to be answered by my, you know, the producers of the movie or anyone. Cause I, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I do not see myself as a control freak at all, sometimes mm -hmm. to a fault. But then I also know that there's times when I am, uh, I, I, I feel like, oh, maybe people think I'm a control freak. Well, can I, I just ju actually explain why I asked that question? Because this yeah. film to me had a very, a distinct personality for want of a better word. Mm. It, it almost seemed like an auteur kind of production of it was very consistent in its in its voice and its visualization the character mm. you know and it struck me that it was like very much possibly you or someone else driving this whole thing with a right. singular vision yes well that is that is what it was that is what it was and i i i had a, I had a charmed experience with the studio and 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 them really letting it be my jam you know uh and and uh but I, the way to get there for me is not being dictatorial or didactic yeah. or, you know, it is everything will eventually certainly be funneled by my view of things, but, and I certainly am after always looking to how can this, how can I make sure that the audience trusts the author of the story? 
and really making sure every choice and specifically visual shots it feels like the camera is in control of the story and the first the person behind the camera is in control of the story but i need everyone's help getting there and could not have made the movie without jane myers the producer and the collaboration with amber and my deep everyone is like everyone that hopefully at some point feels like they are actually kind of running this thing and it just so happens that as everything is run through me i whatever i i mean i, I really think that i thinking i thought a lot about Autorness. And there's, I, I think so much of it is a director's decision about what for them is logical and for what for them is cheap or, or what is cheesy and what needs to be told and what doesn't need to be told. So, for instance, like I see a Ridley Scott or a David Fincher or a, an intellectual filmmaker there's very little cheese in what they're doing. It would not allow heightened, uh, height, heightened emotion or, and it would might need more logic to be included on the other end of the spectrum. Spielberg moment to moment says, you might go, well, would that really happen? Because, and he would go, don't worry. It's good. You know, like, and in that movie, you kind of go, we can, we can kind of look at some things and, and go that logically would, but it doesn't matter. You're carry through it through the thrust of the movie. Um, that's, that's, that's what he selects. That's what he self-selects is. I think that's too cheesy or that's not, cheesy, you know, or, and I think that's too logical, overly explained. doesn't need an explanation. It can be swifter than that and have more momentum to get. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum and when we're inside the world of those movies, we agree. The audience agrees. Like I need that amount of logic. I need that. I don't want it to be overly sentimental in that capacity, you know? So it's really, I don't know that it's conscious, you know, it's yeah. just like to the specific filmmaker's taste what feels like it needs to be articulated in a certain way. So I think just by me being at the helm, it, it happened that way. Uh, yeah. I was very anxious to have a producer like Jane, who's Comanche and, and Blackfeet and, and the, and the, and the movie um, is centered around the Comanche, obviously to make sure that not just for like facts about history, you know, but also when it came to creative decisions that are, that could be seen as arbitrary, like, what color or what side of the room, you know, what, you know, it's like, she's there also like with her own instincts, things that we had no history to help us with. Like, how did they fight? How did they hold about things that are like, we only had drawings for, we didn't have, and word of mouth, you know? So it, mm. it areas where we had to use our imagination, her instincts that are more in touch, obviously than mine with the history of those people are, are also guiding it. Um, yeah. So I'm obviously not bringing, any sort of sense of authenticity from any specificity, you know, for me, it's all, it's all emotionally authentic or what have you. So even there's a moment in the movie where Amber, uh, Amber's character, Nadu whistles to draw the attention of the predator when she's up against a fur trapper. And that came from Jane creatively, not historically creatively going, it'd be so cool if she did a whistle because in and for Comanche, and I think a lot of Southern Plains tribes or maybe other tribes, whistling was a big note. You never whistle at night because it allows evil spirits to come. Oh. Um, and so obviously most people that are not indigenous wouldn't know that that's happening, but it's still a very cool character moment regardless of that information and is informed by Jane and her perspective, you know, and, and yeah. Amber's and, you know, so yeah, that's sort of how we attacked it. Yeah. That's great. I mean, it, it really struck me that 
there was a um, a consistency of taste. You said the word taste. That's cool. That's cool. And being a a ringmaster and allowing everyone to do their job, but w- within that framework. Um, and speaking of actually, you know, I'm, this is all about behind the scenes people. This this podcast. And when you're working with crew and actually with actors too, are there any specific personality traits? It's given that they're they're skilled and they're good at what they do, right, in terms of the skill that they bring. But are there particular personality traits that you look for in people that you want to work with people repeatedly on set? Such a great question. And I would say I look to this more than I look for talent. Firstly, selfishly, I just want to have a good time and I want everyone to have a good time. And that affects the product that you're making. Um, yeah whether or not we had a good time where people are getting along, you know, you can be the most talented people in the world. If you're not getting along, then the thing's not going to get made, you know? So I really look for people that are open, obviously, and not defensive, which, which feeds into the openness, right? Is that we're anxious to collaborate and anxious to very okay with criticism and feedback and, and taking it positively and having good attitudes. You know, I just want people to be well-intentioned, good-hearted people in general. That's, that's sort of what I've always tried to manage um, in selecting crew. Yeah, love that. And then inevitably, when shooting a film or a TV show, things go wrong. Uh-huh. Um, do you have a standard go-to response when things aren't working maybe in a scene? Or is it really a, a case-by-case basis? I, you know, in general, I'm fairly good with rolling with things. Mm-hmm. And before production... If things are going wrong and we have time, I, I will try to continually attack a thing and make sure because because it's like we want it to be right, we want it to be right, we want it to be right. When we're in production, it's like it doesn't matter what the mistake was. I will not, I will never lay into somebody for making a mistake. Um, we're rarely, uh, and you know, it's about solving the problem as quickly and moving on. Okay, so we can't do it that way anymore, or the we're no longer. What can we do? You know, let's. I want to. Just like I, it's sort of the same feeling when you're in a conversation and I'm the kind of person where I don't want there to be quiet. I, I, I don't, you know, I'm, so you keep the conversation going. I'm yeah. sort of that way in production where I'm like, I don't want it. If it lulls an anchor forms and it drags us all down, you know, and I want right. it to constantly let's all, okay, that doesn't happen. So what do we do? And, and lean on my flat, lean on my DP, my AD, whoever it is and actors, you know, I've definitely, I remember having a moment on Cloverfield Lane where there's a funky piece of blocking and we need to show that John Goodman's character had like a knife on his hip, but the camera was over here and it wasn't how I, I was like, oh no, wait, we're on the wrong side. I'll never see. And I didn't know what to do. And then Goodman's like, oh, okay, well, why don't I just, I could just like tap the door with the knife and then you could get the thing and the thing, you know, like he solved it with his behavior that he was adjusting for the, like it was, and it was such a like, oh, thank God he, I was stuck, you know, but he, because I wasn't sitting at my seat dwelling on my own, trying to stop on myself because I went up there and interacted with everyone. Yeah. Everyone then left at the cause and like, okay, how can we figure it out? You know? Well, that speaks to your people skills and the, you know, the, the vibe on set that you encourage, right? Yes. What it doesn't have is I am not the mystical wizard <laughs> who, Ooh, Dan, oh, what's Dan thinking? Oh, Dan, the director, Dan, you know, I do not, I don't have that, which, yeah. which, does allow people to wield a certain power. Um, right. And I, so I don't get that advantage, um, but I do get the other kind of help, which suits my personality. So they can like push their luck or you know, slack <laughs> oh, yeah. off or. <laughs> for sure, for sure. 
for sure. We've got yeah. to wrap up. I've got to let you go. Um, but finally, I'd love to know any advice that you have for any would-be young directors that want to get into this world. Obviously, it's a different era now than when you started with 2023 right now. It is a strange world. <laughs> um, but do you have any recommendations for people wanting to get into this? I'll say a few things. One, watch movies with the sound off um, to study them and and and, and making a movie that you love that you that you know backwards and forward and and pause before the scene starts and go what is the scene about and then hit play and see how that's articulated visually also there's a period in your life to say this a thing i've often say very quickly my sifu when i was learning kung fu which i said at the beginning of this our, our bar chat told me one time practice does not make perfect perfect practice makes perfect like you can mm. kick a soccer ball against your garage a million times and not become a soccer, better soccer player. But if you put a little piece of tape and try and hit that soccer ball on that tiny piece of tape on the wall a thousand times, you'll be a better kicker for sure. There's a time in your life as a filmmaker, there's a period where you should be making things as much as possible to get out all the copycat stuff. Like, oh, I saw this movie and now I want to do it like that. And now I saw this thing. I love that sign. I'm trying to do it like that. Here's my Wes Anderson. Here's my Tony Scott. Here's my whatever, you know, get all that. Out. And with your friends as actors and just so you can make things as much as possible and find your voice then. And that's useful. But at a certain point, you need to transition and then make something where you can make no excuses for it. So when you hit play, I, was, I would say oh, I'm doing this on a VCR, which is not what people do anymore. <laughs> when you hit when you hit play on the thing, um, yeah. You're not saying, oh, for, forgive the sound or don't worry about that. That's just my buddy. But everything else, no, 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 no. Like you're getting real actors. You're working with the deep, like you're doing it the way it really would to see what you really are made of and what you really do need to work on. So it's like make as much as possible for a period and then dedicate to making it right. You know, that's what I would say. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And congratulations on Prey. I absolutely loved it. It's up for Emmys for some reason and not Oscars, but <laughs> I was going to talk about that today, but I think we ran out of time. We'll take it. We'll take yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, amazing. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Soundstage Insider podcast. It was presented and produced by Jamie Muffet. Huge appreciation to Dan and Rachel for their honest, creative, insightful words here today. And if you'd like to learn more about them, check out the show notes for the various links. Don't forget to check out In the Envelope from Backstage, our sister podcast, which focuses on your favourite film, TV and theatre actors and their process and everything to do with acting. It's a really great show. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, we're Soundstage In on Twitter and Soundstage Insider on Instagram. And that's about it. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.